Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from various locations here in the city of Detroit, powered by the Eastside Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now, a content partner to the new Bridge Detroit publication. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so turn on those notifications. Today, we are having a discussion about the role of arts and culture in a city like Detroit. Are the arts a part of the resistance that's happening in Detroit in the form of anti-racism protests? What has been the artist's response to the COVID-19 pandemic? <laughs> Joining us for the conversation today is Rochelle Riley. Rochelle is the Director of Arts and Culture for the City of Detroit. She is a noted author and former columnist at the Detroit Free Press. Rochelle, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you very much. We're delighted to have you. Also joining us is Neil Barclay. Neil is the president and CEO of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. He comes to us from New Orleans, where he was the CEO of the Contemporary Arts Center. Neil, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. So, Donna, we're already into the second week of June, like already. How did we get here? Did you I have no idea. How, what's going on? How are you? What was your weekend like? I don't, I'm trying to remember if I have one and I think not. <laughs> um, Saturday, as you know, I was working in the morning. We had a show me the money day where we were educating yeah. the community on financial management, which is especially important due to COVID. And then I jumped on another call um, talking about policing and that was interesting. But meanwhile, my granddaughter spent the nights or yeah, so that was great. Um, Luna, was here and so she brings sunshine everywhere she goes and that everywhere. was great spending time with her everywhere. however the best part of every weekend lately has been on sunday at 10 p.m insecure listen <laughs> what did you all watch amazing it amazing uh, oh my goodness take your mind off of everything escape uh, that is insecure. insecure thank you Issa. yes what yes it's hbo hbo yeah hbo okay. if you want to see great television do you watch it rochelle you know, I do not, but I do watch Black as F. And let me tell you, that is my go-to to feel better and to laugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you if that makes you feel good, you have to watch Insecure. I'm so much a big I'm so much of a fan of it, Insecure that a couple of years ago I had a pajama party so I could make all my friends watch Insecure with me because I keep telling people what to do and they don't listen. So I was like, okay, spend the night. And actually, I had my friend have a pajama party at her house, um, but it was she, she went along with it. And we watched several episodes of Insecure because if you watch it, you'll be hooked. Listen, it really I, is TV. I'm sad, Donna. I am sad at what's going on between Issa and Molly right now. Like, is it really? Listen, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched, it's already Tuesday. <laughs> you just Tuesday. told me to watch it. It's uh, Tuesday what? if you're yeah. listening to this. So you should have watched it by then. You I should have. I'm just mad that, you know, those two. You know what? I'm just I'm, I'm just gonna friendship. say I was trying to defend Molly and now it's just like wow. You know, she's <laughs> she's just like the drug, indefensible, you know. I just can't do it. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it's the it. best part. It's the best part of Sunday. It is, it is. I really enjoy it. You get a, a really nice escape and you laugh. I mean, it's it's a true comedy mixed in with some drama. I have and an it's okay excellent. Reason. It's excellent black TV. I just want to say that. These are young, talented performers, beautifully written, expertly written and performed. So um, if you're looking for something that's really well done and speaks to contemporary black life in LA and also millennial black of, life. Millennial black life really across all cities, it's fun. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I'm I a right. All right, exactly, right? I'm a Super Ray fan, and if you have not seen it, you should watch The Lovebirds on Netflix. Oh, yes. Which is hilarious. Yes, yeah. I, I, I did enjoy that. that I didn't hilarious. watch it yet, but I saw her and Lakeith Stanfield in the photograph. Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed the photograph. The photograph was really good. I'm a, I'm, <laughs> I'm a Lakeith Stanfield fan too, though. So, so between versatile. him and Issa, yeah. he is just so funny to me. Yeah, yeah. I spent I spent all day Saturday uh, with my my brother, who is who's a police officer uh, here in the city of Detroit. 
uh, and his two sons with my nephews. And I'm going to tell you, it was a little family reunion that we didn't know that we needed. Uh, my brother had been working of nonstop days on end, uh, making sure with the police department on the other side of the protest. And so it was some, it made for some interesting conversation to say the least. But uh, what he needed and what I needed is the love that we continue to exchange. And so I didn't know how much he needed to be loved on and just encouraged. And so it was really cool to spend my Saturday with him and my little nephews. They're getting big. They're not going to be little uh, too much longer, but that was, it was super cool. Did you tell him we wanted to defund him? Oh, how harsh would that have been? I I did not take it that far. We were having I a good time. There. So I kept it, I kept it surface. You know what I mean? <laughs> Neil and Rochelle, how about your weekends? You guys do anything fun? I did absolutely nothing. I, uh, you know, I'm on the phone, it seems like, you know, uh, 10 hours a day on Zoom meetings, which, of course, I had never Technically, I've probably been on Zoom twice before the, you know, the pandemic hit, right? <laughs> uh, but now I'm on all day, every day, it seems like. And so on the weekends, I just try to put some music on, relax, you know. I have to take the dog out for walks, and I'm right near Belle Isle, so we go out there and take walks in the morning. But mm. other than that, new, new, new. <laughs> What about you, Rochelle? Well, anything anything uh, interesting? As far as I'm concerned, yesterday was Friday. Okay. <laughs> you keep talking about this weekend, but I, I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah, what weekend? <laughs> I get it. I understand. Yeah. Listen, uh, we got we have to we gotta shout out a couple of things about Rochelle. Number one, that she has two Sheafy McFly pieces behind her my high school classmate my elementary school and middle school classmate Tashita, wow. fly. and donna did you know that rochelle riley has won columnist of the year for our magazine for 10 years in 10 a row. whole years I mean, wow congratulations how do you, know, how, how do you awesome. stop that it's winning impressive. machine rochelle I'm like sorry. How, how do you get off the winning machine? Like you were winning. <laughs> you, how, many, <laughs> how many awards have you won since you've been working for the city of Detroit? Oh, the, the only award I get is the gratitude of the people I help. So, <laughs> <laughs> not the only. Don't put it like that. Well, well that's, <laughs> that's yeah. not and not always but, gratitude, right? But but the but the trophies are over, and now it's literally just about the work. So that's wonderful. Yeah, I love it. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, guys, it's time for Fresh Off the Press news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Um, you have it up. I just want to talk yeah. about it. Um, CNN talked about what is it when we talk about um, defunding police, what does it mean? Because I think a lot of people talk about police abolition and people think that we're no longer trying to have public safety inside of our communities. Um, and I, I don't think there's even consensus among people who are advocating to defund the police on what that means. I know that in Minneapolis, um, the city council just voted to defund police last week or this they're past disband. weekend. They're disband. using different language. Disband. Well, that's true. Disband the police. And what they're saying is they're going to create something entirely new. And, um, you know, people say, well, that's terrible. Who will I call if I have a problem? Um, but I think that uh, really when the movement is really centered around this concept that we spend a disproportionate share of resources on policing. If you look at the... Um, you know, the military com complex that we have in the United States and the fact that we spend so much on the military, so much more than we spend on other things. Look at the police. The, the city of Detroit spent $294 million from its general fund and police last year. And that um, information was compiled by our friend um, Chase Camp Cantrell from the Comprehensive Annual Financial Report, City of Detroit. And let me see what they spent on the art. You want to know what, Donna, I think... Uh, what you said, though, earlier, as you look for those numbers, 
is key is that uh, defunding the police means something different uh, for whomever you're talking to. I know that uh, the CNN article talked about uh, it being on, you know, this sort of spectrum right. of whomever you're talking to sort of depends. And I just wanted to bring that level of nuance and also recognize the language differences that people are using. We're talking about defunding the police. What city council in Minneapolis did is passed, I think it was a resolution to disband police. Right. I think that's something uh, different than I want to Well, I think that they're talking about disbanding police, but not, not having public safety. So I think that's also important. They want to reconstitute something new. So if you look at somebody saying, let's dissolve a Detroit public school system and create an alternative public school system, because unions have too much control over what's happening, and they control the direction of education, and we're not going to be able to um, reform schools unless somehow we can pierce the veil of unions and, and, and lose, make them lose control. This is what people are talking about doing for the most part with policing. Mm -hmm. These are the measures that people are pushing forward. So if you look at crime prevention, mm -hmm. if you are spending $294 million on the police officers in the city of Detroit every single year, how many of those dollars are actually spent on prevention and is investing in police prevention activity. <coughs> We're spending um, that amount of money on policing. I can't see anything in the chart on arts because arts spending is so minimal that it doesn't even rise to the level of this graph. And so I think that when you look at health though, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and we spent $8 million in, on health in the same year we spent $294 in our general fund on policing. And the question is, is that balanced and can we reassess and come up with better ways to do prevention? When we were young, there were arts programs in schools, there were arts programs in communities, there were recreation centers that were open and people had places to go that helped develop them fully. And right now what we've done is shrink the public sector um, where we're spending on, um, at, on social well-being of people. We don't have housing programs like we used to. So many programs have gone by the wayside. So my understanding of the most common thinking around defunding police is really reallocating resources, keeping some police, reallocating resources, and also weakening police unions. And I have one more thing to say before I pass the baton, and that is I'm trying to understand if police unions are unions. When the, for, when, when the UAW strikes, AFL-CIO AFL sometimes goes on strike with them. Ask Me sometimes goes on strike with them. Um, when the teachers strike, sometimes you have police, um, these, uh, these other unions working together to um, really support workers' rights. It seems to me that the police union is really anti-workers' rights, anti-freedom of police. And the people who belong to police unions are really sworn by a Pledge of Omerita that's more like the mafia than um, like anything we should expect in um, public discourse. So um, I'm interested in what you think, but after initially thinking it was a terrible idea, I kind of get the point of what people are saying when they say defund police. Yeah, I, 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 will, uh, I will want us to uh, also really push for conversation around that reallocation piece, right? What are some of the things that are symptomatic that brings young people, particularly young black people in contact with police in negative interactions? Can we reinvest in early childhood education? Can we reinvest, as you said earlier, in social programming? But I think this time presents us an opportunity to sort of take a step back, not too long of a step back because we, we need to act, to really reimagine policing in this country and what it was built and founded upon. It was not built <laughs> to serve, to protect and serve the lives of Black people. We know that uh, police has its roots in, uh, sla in slave catchings, right? And, that's, and so if, we, if we're going to talk about making systemic change, especially in a, a structure like the police, we got to go back to its root, pluck it out and plant some new seeds. And I don't know what that looks like in terms of allocation of resources or uh, the disbandment like uh, Minneapolis is doing uh, with their police. But I do think it is high time that we have a very serious conversation around this country around the structure of policing and restructuring it, plucking that up and putting down something new. Mm -hmm. So Rochelle, Neil, do you want to join us in this dialogue at all? I don't. Well, I, I haven't followed really this discussion very 
very, uh, very much. I, I think that this notion of balancing where we're making our investments in society around safety and around human capital is an important discussion, though. And I think that that's a discussion worth having. Um, how that affects policing, per se, um, I haven't I haven't paid enough attention to it right now to to really have an intelligent opinion about it. I probably have an opinion, <laughs> but <laughs> not well. <laughs> it would not be well studied. Yeah. Well, I want to mention a couple of things. When I started at the Free Press on 9/11 of 2000. Um, I didn't write a column for a month until I had a chance to survey the landscape of Detroit and see what I wanted to write about. And my very first column called for the Detroit public schools to be shut down. Um, I was not a new person coming to town saying kids should not be taught. I said that the school district was in such disarray that the only way to fix it was to literally tear it apart and build it back up from scratch. Um, it, it caused quite a stir, but that's how I felt. Uh, that's how strongly I felt that the school district was mm -hmm. uh, terrible. Uh, it is still not where it should be, far from it. And I think that the level of uh, frustration and the level of revolution that's happening because of this public lynching of uh, Mr. Floyd is people saying the same thing. Uh, in the cases of whether you defund or whether you literally disband, I don't think, I, I, I appreciate the arguments about defunding, but they don't go far enough to explain to me what you do in the meantime while you're moving money from one place to another. I think there's plenty of money to continue to have safety, but also do the things that you need to so that your uh, residents and, and the citizens who live in different cities have the things they need to be productive citizens. And this stuff that Donna was talking about, arts and proper academics and schools that aren't just torn up buildings where you not only don't have a safe place to learn but you don't have the resources to learn we live in a state where they literally just had to fight over whether a child has the right to literacy hmm. so and yeah. how can yeah. um make the case that they're going to be all they can be whether they want to be an artist or musician or a comedian or whether they want to be president of the United States. So I, I'm, I'm not quite understanding still, even though I've been embroiled in all of this because as a former journalist, I'm going to keep up with every little bit. I, I, I don't understand how you, I don't care where you put the money, whether it's better, you know, social services, mm -hmm. education, programming that you need, you still have to have some type of safety um, measure, some way to make sure that people do have someone to call. If something does happen, you may have fewer things happen if you take care of things on the front end. There still might be something that happens. So I think police departments, and it's, it, it's very simple to find out how many complaints, how many killings, how many assaults are attributable to each officer, count them all up and see who needs to be kicked out. If it means everybody and disbanding a whole department, that's fine. If it means getting rid of the bad apples so that the good cops can then do their jobs without having to stand around not wanting to say something about the bad cops, then do that. Well, you know, I, was, Rochelle, I, think I was listening to uh, this, uh, I guess the mayor was on the radio this weekend on NPR, the mayor of Minneapolis, and he was saying that one of their problems is the fact that the union contract does not allow them to easily right. get rid of police officers. It's a process that takes many easy. years, there's many levels of review that has to happen, and they can literally not get rid of somebody easily. Uh, who has done some of the egregious acts that we're talking about. And that's the, that's the argument for disbanding is to break up union control because if the unions go away, then you can build something new. And you have, can have public safety officers who are not the prior police officers. Now, I, I think there's also this fallacy around safety, right? Because the first thing you think about is who's going to protect women and children from rape and that kind of thing. And then I remember that a couple of years ago, Kim Tritton, Kim Worthy were working on um, the 490 challenge because there was a backlog of 10,900 or something like that rape kits that were never processed, where people went to the police, did what they were supposed to do. The police either said, oh, she seems like she's fast. She doesn't seem like she was raped me. She wasn't crying that hard. Put them on a shelf and left them in a warehouse. And so I think that, you know, when I look at residents in our community who called the police and the police never come or the police come half an hour after they said someone's breaking in. Our people really made safe in a lot of instances. Years ago, I had a home invasion. When I lived in Southfield, I was with three little kids and I just moved out by myself and someone broke into my home and I called the police in Southfield. And I wanna say Southfield because I don't want Detroit police getting angry. I don't know how they do things. But the police officer showed up, 
talk to me, did not do a single fingerprint test, didn't even, I, I was looking for fingerprint dust. I'm going to be honest with you. I wanted to see the black stuff and I wanted to know what they were doing. They did nothing but explain to me that they could not make me safe, that there were so many robberies in the city of Southfield and it was impossible to take care of them. So, okay. So what do you do? Do I get a stronger door? Oh no, that won't help you either. They can kick in a strong door. So the police left me feeling more unsafe after they came than I did after they got there. And there was no investigation at all. And I'm not saying that no crimes are investigated, but we have rapes that go uninvestigated. We have robberies that go uninvestigated, car thefts that go uninvestigated. And so if we somehow restructured, I'm wondering if there's a way to make sure investigations take place when vulnerable people are harmed. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I agree with that point, but, you know, not to make an overgeneralization, but I'm going to make a generalization. I, I, I really think it would be interesting to talk to Black folk uh, in the city of Detroit who say that they, who would say that they feel safe when in, in the presence of police or when police is around. I think Black people um, have a different notion of what safety is and who who brings safety. Uh, a few episodes ago, well, episodes ago, I was making a point, and I think Donna was making this point as well about you know protecting and serving policing versus surveillance. I think that we have uh, for so long felt surveilled uh, by police in our neighborhoods instead of served. And so when we talk about uh, the feeling of safety or the perception of safety, I'm not sure if that's something that truly resonates with the average Detroiter. The other, the other thing that I, the, the only other argument that I would make on this is I think it's time, I want to say it again, to reimagine what we do with policing in this country from its root, from its root. We're talking about, we're being very reactionary in how we talk about it. And I get it because we need this quick fix, but we need to go back to its root, pluck it and start something else. I agree. You can't reinvent anything overnight. It takes study. It takes evaluation. It takes, like Rochelle said, what are you going to do in the meantime? Right. First of all, you're never going to sell senior citizens in Detroit on getting rid of police officers, okay? <laughs> I was talking to um, some folks on Saturday, one of my Zoom calls, and you know they said, listen, we have these meetings. They want to run us out the room. So I think that one of the challenges for the people in those movements is relanguaging the movement so that it doesn't seem like removing public safety. If what you're trying to do is reform policing, but you're worried that the term reform has been co-opted by people who aren't really doing anything but nibbling around the edges. Maybe we have to come up with a different word, but I think that, you know, if you have to go into this much explanation to explain what defund, disband, and abolish means, it's probably not the right sales job, right? We, we need new terminology, we need some thought, and we need to find a way to build compromise. But I do think it's time to open up the box begin thinking about new paradigms and come up with a plan to put something else together. So Rochelle, you know, when you came um, after 9-11 and you said, you know, they need to tear up Detroit public schools and build it back up. In a lot of ways that's happened. Unions have much less power than they do. a long time actually happened. And I had some people to call me who remembered that first column. And it took, yeah. long, I mean, over a decade before they finally started to look at how that might be different. But of course, the first thing they wanted to do was create a whole different district and then bring in charter schools instead of focus on exactly what the problem was. And I want to get back to something you mentioned a, a second ago, because I, I can't, I, I can't like not talk about the fact that there are good cops. There are police mm -hmm. officers who literally take the badge and the uniform seriously. So I, I like the, the use of the word that you chose, Orlando, which was reimagine. But what I think they need to do is remake police departments so that mm -hmm. they change what they exist for. I don't think people really think about the fact that in London, people are safe all the time and their officers don't carry guns. You have to determine what you want to, to have that might make you feel safe. There are people who do feel safer with some police, but there are some people who would never call the police. I, also, was, I was struck from behind in my car right on the border of Gross Point and... Um, Detroit and I called one of the editors at the paper and I said okay I'm trying to figure out whether I should call the police he said well are you on this side or are you on that side 
I said, I'm on this side. He said, you need to go home. There's no need to talk. But that was several years ago. That's not true now. So there are real improvements that are going on. I, I don't know that you want to disband every department in America if some of them are working. What you want to do is what you would do with any company. Get rid of the people who are breaking the law. Get rid of the people who are breaking the rules. And get rid of the people who ought to be in jail. But you got to remake the culture, too, because the culture is broken. The culture you, you is absolutely up. racist. You I'm can't sorry. change the deal. What you can do is they can't bring those feelings into the workplace. But, 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 but you can change the culture because the culture is not just about the feelings of a person who comes in. If you have a toxic work culture, you become a different being when you're inside that culture. It changes your perceptions of people. To the extent police culture is anti-Black male, anti-Black people, to the extent that they see Black people as perpetrators when they see us, and some good cops don't, but the norms are there that this is how we're seeing. You got to make that. So I really like your idea of remaking police, and I'm going to use that. So excuse yeah. me if I borrow it, I'm going to, I'm going to say Rochelle Riley said, cite the source. I always, I always cite the source. I always give people credit, but I really think that re making and reimagining re and remaking is really the dialogue that needs to happen right now in the city of Detroit, where we don't just say this is this one cop and this is one cop. The FBI has talked about the infiltration of cops. You have people who are here forever. I met with, is his name, Colonel Glass Gasper from, the, I'm terrible with names, from the Michigan State Police. And he's a new colonel, a wonderful man with a great vision for change. And he wants to bring about um, diversity, multiculturalism, and, and inclusion in the Michigan State Police Department. And his biggest fight is with officers who've been there for years who are now suing him in court because they're saying that he's violating their rights by trying to promote Black people. So I think that there's institutional brokenness that has to be fixed through something big. But I, I, I appreciate your comments. I think that um, we're probably on to a bigger conversation. Hopefully somebody's going to take that conversation from here and take it somewhere. All right. That wraps up Fresh Off the Press. If you have stories that you want us to cover, you can uh, drop them at any of our socials at Authentically Detroit at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can send us an email at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. We are so excited to get into this discussion with Rochelle and Neil about arts and culture in the Detroit. <laughs> if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, again, hit us up. Uh, we are always listening with our ears tuned to what you have to say. So, uh, Donna, I'm going to go ahead and punt to you to start with our first question. Let me open up the questions. Don't punt to me. You, go, you do I'll the, first, the question. first question. So All the right, first thank question you. is for Rochelle. Rochelle, as the Director of Arts and Culture of the City of Detroit, what is your vision for you and the work of your department moving forward? Well, I can tell you the most important thing is uh, about investment. The mayor appointed me to uh, sort of steward uh, the investments that the city makes in arts, arts organization, our arts treasure. The first thing I have to do is make sure people know that the office is open and that we are working to collaborate and to support all the good work that's already happening. As I've said a million times in listening tours around the city and in conversations with hundreds of people, uh, I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. I'm here to grease the wheel on stuff that's really fabulous that's already happening. Okay. All right. So Neil, as the CEO of the second largest African American museums, is that still the case? Are you still second? I think so, yeah. Yeah. After the Smithsonian, then the um the the Charles Wright Museum, which was the largest African American museum really in the world, I think, until last year. Um, until I'm sorry, the Smithsonian opened. But anyway, as the CEO of that museum, what is your vision for um, yourself and the work of the museum moving forward? Well, you know, we, uh, like many people, we have moved a lot of our programming in the short term online. I think we, we are really pulling back some of the programs that even speak to the present moment. Uh, the uh, lecture that Maxine Waters gave a few years ago uh, is now up online, um, some of the concerts we've given, educational materials, et cetera. But you know, when the, uh, the Floyd incident happened, it just really brought home to me how the right has to become more of the voice for creating the context to which 
for, by which, in which people can really discuss the complexity of the issues that we're facing, right? Mm -hmm. Now, museums have done that, you know, aesthetically, certainly in art and through the exhibits that they do, and the catalogs they print. But for history museums, you know, we haven't engaged in making this connection between the past and the present. Mm. And I'm really looking now with the right and our team of creating exhibitions, historically based exhibitions at least, that really speak to the present moment, but provide the historical context of that moment, right? You talk about, you know, policing, where that came from. Many people don't know where it came from, right? They have a total vision of what policing is based in the present moment. What they don't have is an understanding of how we had policing in the first place, right? right? So if you look at, for example, the exhibit that we opened in September is called Voting Matters. And it really looks at the uh, role of African-Americans and the resistance and the really the, the fight that we have had as people that has resulted in securing what we understand to be the right to vote, right? But it also looks at things that were put in place to keep us from voting. One of them being the Electoral College, for example, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. That was really a device to disenfranchise people, not to engage people in the democratic process, right? And many people say, you know, that's weird. My vote really doesn't end up being, you know, resulting in who picks the president, what, what, what? Why does that happen? What, where, where did that come from, you know? Um, and so, you know, we really, I feel like we really want to do more work on helping people to understand the present moment and bringing in those historical uh, antecedents, if you will, facts, context, that give them a better understanding of how we got here, if that makes sense, right? So I have, I have a follow-up question for you, sure. Ambrose Shell. Um, and that is that, you know, one of my passions is connecting people in the neighborhoods in which I work to the work of the museum, making sure that the museum is benefiting everybody in Detroit, right? Because it's our museum. We're so proud of it. And there's a subset of people who actually go there and participate in the greatness of those programs. I'm wondering, as we talk about the um, examining these roles in this history, how were you looking at connecting with the community? Because I know Rochelle has a whole vision around that. And so maybe the two of you can talk about how you're working together to connect the community to Charles Wright. I think it's an interesting question for the right because one of the, the assets that we have is our building. And getting people to the building is a large part of how we pay for everything that we do. Right. One of the uh, real challenges in the, in the present moment with our budgets is we have no earned income and the earned income is, you know, a third to a half of the income we have. So there's this tension between pulling people to that site. Right. And also getting programs out. But one of the things that our education team is working on um, uh, and we're working on with all of our programs is developing more or less pop-up versions of aspects of our public programs, our exhibitions that can really be brought to a library, can be brought to a school, can be brought, you know, one of the things that's going to be happening this fall is we'll have no school tours, because at least that's our understanding. There'll be no kids coming to museums this fall, right? And so can we develop material that goes to them, right? And this can be true of community centers. It can be true of other places throughout the community. Um, it's, it's a fairly um, not new idea for us because I think since, I've, since I came to Detroit that, you know, there's been this push to really re-engage the community in the right and make them, make us all understand the jewel that that asset really is. Right, not just in Detroit, which we're all very proud of, but it's also widely emulated around the world, right? right. And so if exactly. we're the model, how can we become a better, more current, more contemporary model of what this can be? The other thing that's interesting about museums in general is that they are moving away from the storied places on the hill and becoming more community centers. Right. You see the best museums doing more and more activities that really do engage with the community, the issues they're concerned with, 
the topics and things that they're concerned with. I think that's particularly true of uh, a, a museum like ours, which is at least in substantial part, a history-based museum. We're also a cultural center, right? And right. so that's a whole nother aspect of our work. So just a real, real quick follow-up, Rochelle, before you, I, I just want to think, say real quickly that, you know, when you think of, there used to be on um, West Grand Boulevard, this thing called the Taste Fest, where restaurants from all over Detroit brought their best food to let people sample who did not normally go to those restaurants as a way of drawing them in. And I'm wondering if we could use some of these traveling tours like a Taste Fest, you can let people sample and get hungry and develop an appetite for what you have inside the museum. Maybe, yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. Michelle. Thank you. So, I'm gonna uh, those, the, those are some of the things that Neil and I have been talking about, and that's expanding the footprint of the Charles Wright around the city so that there are joint projects, there are collaborations, there are places. I'd like to be able to see the Wright and that name, you know, in different neighborhoods as a part of different things. And that's some of the stuff that we're working on now with the uh, Office of Arts, Culture, and Entrepreneurship. I, I think that uh, as we do more collaborations, it will be easier to get more funding for some of these things that move uh, programming to where people are, to different neighborhoods, to the children's. It does it's not about where you go to get something, it's about what's available near you. So um, hopefully look for some of those things to be happening pretty quickly. So Rochelle, you have a big day coming up tomorrow in city council. There's a vote, some kind of ordinance on the table that I heard about. Well, it's not my ordinance, but Councilman Scott Benson uh, and, and a really strong group of people have uh, been pushing a sign ordinance so that there would be um, advertising, it changes the way advertising will work in the city. And the part that applies to my office is that to be able to do the signage, the companies had to agree to provide funding to the Detroit Arts Fund for Public Art. And uh, my only uh, caveat was that it would have to be in the neighborhoods. So that means uh, every time they want to do something like that, it's the closest we'll get to some type of fee for doing something. You know, eventually I'd like for all developers to have to pay some type of arts fee or have some percentage of their... Come on, Rochelle. You know, Come on. That is music oh, to my ears. I just want you to know. <laughs> but, but, but for this sign order money that is written into it that would go to the arts fund and everything that we can find and get and do that goes to arts is going to make sure that we can improve our neighborhoods because it's about revitalizing and making them beautiful and that makes people want to move into them and makes us have more people. Hmm. Rochelle I want to ask you uh, a question around just your your career moves you were a columnist <laughs> columnist at the free press and I'm, I'm curious as to how uh, you decided to take on this role and what was that process and transition like? You were writing for the pre-press for, was it 20 years? Did you get make it to 20? It uh, was 19. 19 years. Wow. Yes. September of 2019 was 19 years. Wow. And now Which you're- Which saying out loud makes my head hurt, but- <laughs> They went by fast. They went by they, fast. They really I wrote my first column in Louisville, Kentucky in 1996. And I said to myself, when I do this column writing thing for 20 years, I'm going to do something else because I have lots of things I'm interested in. I am interested in making films. I have a small film company. I'm a photographer. I'm a painter. I sing show tunes on demand. I have lots of things. Wow, I demand you sing a show tune. Okay, right now. Come on now. <laughs> You got the green shirt on. This is the, this is the wrong audience. The wrong <laughs> audience to say that. Edit it out. So, wait a um, minute. Say, do that again. No. no <laughs> there's no business like show business. Anyway. All right. So, um, in 2016, wow. that was when I was supposed to do this. But, um, I had a, a real important project that I still wanted to do, and I applied for a Pulliam, uh, a Pulliam Fellowship. It's one of the most prestigious ones in journalism. The Society of Professional Journalists gives you $75,000 to study whatever you want. And I applied for it to study the impact of trauma on how children learn, because we're not paying attention to the fact that while we spend so much time talking about, well, we got to teach children how to read, we can't promote them to the fourth grade if they're not reading at third grade level. 
but we're not dealing with them coming to the classroom traumatized in the first place. So if you're not dealing with that, and then you're trying on top of that to make them get to a certain level, it's ridiculous and it's wrong. So I was working on that project, so I couldn't leave because I was finishing that project. So I finished that project and it ran in the paper and online in December of 2019. And I had lunch with the mayor because he and I have known each other for a long, long time. And I said, you know, I'm getting ready to leave the free press and I'm trying to decide what I want to do. And I think I want to find a building and, and blow it out and build the Detroit Black Repertory Theater because we're the largest black city without a black repertory theater. And he said, so you're interested in the arts? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, uh, I need an arts and culture director. And I said, we don't have arts and culture in city government. He said, but I want to. I have wanted to, and I need somebody to do it. Would you be interested? I said, well, right. tell me about the job. He said, it's whatever you want it to be. Now, there are two things I always knew, being a columnist and writing whatever I wanted to write and having a second job in my lifetime where I could make it what I wanted it to be. I said, okay, I'll do it. And <laughs> the rest is history. It's like, welcome to the city of Detroit. Wow. You know, that's beautiful story. And Rochelle, we just oh. want to put a footnote in that because you just said something that was music to my ears, not just the singing, but your words. When you were talking about trauma in our children, because yeah. if we really want to stop the violence, we have got to begin healing the trauma. Um, one of my favorite researchers, and she's only my favorite she came up with this concept of post-traumatic slavery syndrome and pointed out that all of the trauma our ancestors endured in slavery and after slavery has been passed on from family member to family member with no intervention and no healing. And so we are now in our communities and we are acting out that trauma sometimes by having very short fuses, by having low attention spans and other things. And there's other research that was done that talked about um, you know, what is it, the um, toxic, um, toxic trauma, toxic stress syndrome for students, children who were born to parents who were traumatized. And those children came out neurologically impaired because of what happened in utero. And one of the things that was seen to be healing was the arts. The arts and culture helped heal that trauma. And a lot of times we only focus on factual types of things, teaching methods and counseling, but not arts. Neil, how do you see your work at the right helping to uplift and help address some of that trauma in this new, um, I'm not gonna say defunded, reimagined police paradigm? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think that's gonna be a central part of what we're going to do moving forward, right? And you know this notion of developing a context and understanding of where our trauma comes from, for example, would be a perfect uh, example of something we might do. One of the exhibits we're thinking about after voting matters, which you know I've literally have been developing since the day I got it, I got appointed, would be something that really deals with social inequality, uh, racial and social inequities in society how that came about, why it happened, et cetera, right? And so in that kind of context, yes, we can look at uh, some of the, the traumatizing effects of all of this, right? Um, I think it's also will be inherent, and mind you, the exhibits are not all, uh, what's the word I wanna use? Um, uh, set at the adult level, right? right? They're meant to be understood on a variety of different levels. Uh, Kevin, as you know, is our designer. And, you know, we're even thinking about doing a whole sort of exhibit that's at child eye level, right? A whole part of it that just activates at that level, right? In the, in the space. Uh, but there's a variety of, of ways that we can talk about this material for different age groups, et cetera. And so, and so I think that that will be part of the work that we'll do, you know, just as we'll begin to, you know, look at the roots of racism, you know? The, the what is race actually, right? The construct, as we all know, is uh, the concept of race is a made up concept. There's no racial purity in the United States. There hasn't been for, you know, centuries, <laughs> really. Can you bring Tom Hossie Coates in for a guest lecture? I'll come and <laughs> yeah. pay big money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we said absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> all right, <laughs> Orlando, do you have yeah, um, I, I, I really uh, wanted to talk about the uniqueness here in the city of Detroit with you, Neil. Um, you uh, hail from New Orleans, and 
a good friend to our show and to Eastside Community Network, Simone Lightfoot always says, Detroit is big mama. And I'm wondering if you can testify to Detroit being big mama to the rest of the United States and the world. Mm -hmm. We want to hear that. Mama, what do you mean by that? But when Big Mama gets sick, whatever happens with Big Mama tends to happen in other places. And so Detroit is maybe even like that cage bird that, um, or the, the, the miner's canary rather, yeah. where, yeah. I think, you know, Detroit is very much so that because in Detroit, there's a microcosm of a wide variety of issues that are uh, really affecting our society today. You know, whether it's uh, social in inequality, the uh, environment, I came to, not of course, but I came to New Orleans and the first exhibit that was set to be on view was Monticello. <laughs> and it was boycotted, right? By you, you mean when you came to Detroit? <laughs> yeah, and I was saying, oh, this is very different here, right? Because it had <laughs> run to record audiences everywhere else it went. No pushback, nothing, <laughs> right? And we even restructured it because we thought, oh, Detroit's not going to like it the way that it had been presented in all those places. But still, and I really appreciate that about Detroit. I really have come to really love that about Detroit. You know, they're not going to let you get away with too much. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's, that, in that way, it is Big Mama. And we appreciate your appreciation because I remember when you came here and there were people with picket signs and blaming you for something that had been decided before you got here. So being do. able to roll with it is um, part of leadership and it's great that you were able to sort of take that on. Um, well, it's also part of the role of, of leaders. You just can't take too much of it personally, right? Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. So Rochelle, you have some other interesting concepts. I'm really excited about a project that we are looking at working on in one of the neighborhoods. And I know you have a lot of neighborhood projects. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I can tell you that uh, the, the important thing for me was when I first literally started the job, I went to every city district uh, for a series of listening, it's called a listening tour, listening sessions. And I only asked two questions. Uh, what do you have in your district that you love and what do you not have that you want? And what I heard from everybody was space, space and funding, space to either do things, space to provide classes, space to have performances. And so one of the hopeful things that I did and included in the plan that the mayor and I announced back at that big splashy announcement before COVID was to try and use uh, arts and culture as a catalyst for neighborhood growth and have art houses and have those in burgeoning arts districts so that we can, you know, again, begin to rebuild neighborhoods, but rebuild them through the arts. So we have several of those in the works. And um, some of those projects that already exist, for instance, are the Heidelberg Project, which um, is world-class and has been around for a long time. It is now being, I'll use your word, Orlando reimagined by its uh, founder and, and creator, Tyree Guyton. So we may have an announcement about that pretty soon. And then we also have one on the east side where a couple has bought a bunch of houses and transformed them into different things. One is a playhouse where they gutted this bungalow and it's now a performance space. So you walk in and it's like walking into a theater and you just set up chairs and the acoustics are great. So I, I want to find those pockets of genius and, and innovation and people doing things and have the city support that that's already happening. Um, the other thing that we're doing is trying to get ready for the waning of the pandemic. The pandemic is never going to be over, but it's not going to be as serious. So we're doing yeah. conversations called The Way Forward. There are 18 of them. We had two last week. The first one was on how to be uh, a business as an artist so that you're actually making money. And the second one was about fashion, where Tracy Reese talked about what Detroit has to do to become uh, an actual uh, fashion industry spot. And so we've got some coming up on art houses, dance. There's four on music. It's so funny that Detroit is not already a fashion industry spot. People know Detroiters around the world by the way we dress. Worldwide, but is there a set fashion industry? The reason it's not is because of the stuff that has to be imported to make it happen and the people who don't think they can do it. My job is to let them know they can do it and provide what they need. So yes, there is a there is a fashion style. There are fashion entrepreneurs, but is there a fashion industry like Seventh Avenue in New York used to be, or fashion houses all in one place making something. Mm -hmm. What I want is for people to to wear something and they know that it came from Detroit. Now or, go ahead. 
No, I'm sorry. Go on. And, and if there are people who want to work in fashion, they don't feel like they have to go to New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. They can come to Detroit. So what I really want Detroit to be known for is designer masks, because I'm never going to stop wearing a mask. Right. And I just, I just need to be fashionable with it, right? Some of these You're things are with just a whole not line cute. Of them. Exactly. A new online store, a whole line of masks. Are you really? Oh yeah. Oh, I want yeah because listen, I want one. Yes. I said I want one. Tell us I about. Know you do. There's gonna be several yes. of them. There's a whole line of them, right? Oh, that's exciting. So more of a kind of you know a, more drawn from our culture, obviously. Right? Yes. You look like a lioness with whiskers. <laughs> <laughs> Those are available on Amazon, though, because I looked at them for our, ga our gala last year. <laughs> I, I, I ordered a mask because I'm trying to get African, I'm trying to get Kente cloth masks, right? And I ordered one, oh. and it will probably be August before this thing comes. But I was so excited I bought it because it was just really cute, right? And I was like, listen, if you have to wear it, if you have to integrate it into your look. You can't, it, it can't look like a bandana on your face. You've got to somehow you know, wear it and wear it proudly and innovate with that. So I'm really excited the museum is going to do that. And it might be nice to have like a mask fashion show um, in the community Ooh, like or, you know, um, next gala, maybe we can all wear, because I know last year's gala, we were wearing one kind of mask, right? It was a masquerade uh -huh. ball extravaganza also. And uh -huh. we're trying to figure out what that's going to look like. Um, what is, how it has, have artists participated in the COVID-19 pandemic? we change topics now all we talk about is policing but we've had quite a few people in our community get sick and die um so what is the role of the artist community or the cultural centers in helping to fight back well artists have always been a part of every single effort to do anything in the history of man that means um we just had the everybody versus covid concert where you had people these are working people this is a part of our mm -hmm. our uh working class in Detroit who literally didn't have a way to make money and to make income. But I can tell you the thing that was just beautiful for me is we had two artists who donated their work and didn't want anything back so that it could benefit the fund. And there are people stepping up to help others in that way. So artists always step up. They always have, whether they're performing for free to make sure somebody else can do something or whether they're sharing their knowledge about something. Um, I, I want us to make sure we come back in a big way on the other side of this this fall. Yeah, so Neil, you referenced the museum as both a museum and a cultural center, right? A community center, a cultural center. And I think about, you know, all over the world right now, we have um, these resilience hubs where people can go for um, climate resilience. And now it looks like we need places for people to go for disease resilience, where you access resources and critical information and um, where if there's a blackout, you might have some renewable energy and battery storage, that kind of thing. Have you really, have you begun thinking of how you can utilize the position of trust the museum has in our community to um, provide those resources as well as correct a lot of the inaccurate information that we have going on out there? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question for us, I think, because it, um, depending on what the topic is, you know, it run, it could run us farther and farther afield from our core mission, right? Which is the exhibitions, the public programs, the educational things that we do, right? But I do think that there's a role for that, for the right. And that's what I was alluding to in the, in the beginning of trying to reimagine, rethink about, innovate the model of what a museum is and make it more like a, a gathering place, you know, the uh, sort of town square, right, mm -hmm. concept, as opposed to what museums have traditionally historically been. But I don't think that we have the expertise to really be the authoritative voice in some of these areas, whether it's health or some of these issues that are more nuanced, obviously, in terms of the science or whatever of them. But I do think we could be a repository of the information. To right, you, exactly. Right? and yes. be a place where that information can happen and does happen. You know, we also have a pretty robust sustainability initiative at the museum right now, which is really about not just, um, you know, developing more uh, what I would call green technologies and practices as we run the museum, 
but also talking about how the lack of attention to some of these environmental issues, sustainability issues, is directly affecting the neighborhoods and homelands of people of African descent, right? Alluding to, I was saying, our next exhibit may pull in a combination of these kinds of issues. And then uh, Mario Moore's solo exhibition, however, uh, follows that. But integrating the culture, the history, the factual information is going to be really key to the work that we do moving forward. Okay. I love it. I know that we are uh, running short on time. I really want to get, uh, <laughs> get this question in. Um, and it really uh, has to do with um, our arts and culture scene, our culture placekeeping scene here in the city of Detroit. And I want to ask each of you, how do you imagine Detroit's arts and culture scene evolving? Like when you go home and you dream about it, what do you see in the future? What do you see? Well, I'm going to go first since I've got to peel off. And I'll say that um, what I see is recognition in the face of Detroiters and Michiganders of how great Detroit's art scene is. I, I see a sense of pride and a sense of understanding that the world-class talent and the treasures that we have and the, the organization and innovation and stuff that happens here, there's nothing that's happening in the world that we don't have in Detroit. And we need to develop and, and have a sense of pride about that and embrace that in a way that, you know, New Yorkers talk about their art, or Chicago talks about what they're doing, or even Dallas talks about what they're doing. I want that to be the way we act in Detroit. I want us to, to treat our entire art scene the way people used to treat Motown and, and should still do. But we've got a whole generation of amazing artists and, and all kinds of artists, musical artists, fine artists, muralists, sculptors, uh, techno art, Detroit from someplace else and go, tag, man, Detroit is awesome. That's my goal. I, I want to thank you all for having me on. I have to go and do another show, but Neil and I are going to be working on some great stuff that we hope to talk to you about in time. Congratulations on the show, and Orlando, congratulations on your new direction. Thank and you. this is fun. And next time, whole, uh, next time I'll sing a whole song. Okay. We're looking forward to that. Yeah, my answer to that question was to invest in young artists. Um, you know, part of our work at the uh, Contemporary Arts Center in New Orleans was really about this notion of bringing uh, artists that are here to the attention of a national audience. That center had a national platform. I think the right has a national platform, but bringing it to the attention of funders, the field, et cetera. We're not so much talking about commercial artists here, but people working in theater and dance and visual arts, right? By, for example, our, Mario is probably, uh, Mario has already has a fairly successful career, but I think the exhibit we're doing for him at the right will take that also to another level, right? Uh, the catalog we're doing for the work, the way that um, uh, Taylor Aldridge, I think that'll be, that's part of a strategy to really have people understand that we have these world-class artists here and to introduce them to other museums. I think when museums see him here, you know, they'll go, oh wow, we could have that exhibit by him. The work is fantastic. I don't know if you know Mario's work, but it's, it's quite amazing, you know? Um, so that's that would be my answer. That's great, exciting. Neil, thank you for joining us. Listen, if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials, Facebook, Instagram, okay. and Twitter at I will have somebody hit you up. <laughs> Good. Good. I'm gonna learn social media one day. No, I do go on. I'm not a Facebook social media person, right? Um, but I, I promise myself I will be back. <laughs> you should. You should. I should, right? Yes. There, there's a whole community um, there is. on there who would love to connect with the CEO. Uh, yeah. right, so That's we're doing right. more and more on there. I mean, I, I'm saying I don't do that work, but you know, members of our staff are really focusing more and more on the yeah. social media um, yeah. aspect. And our new website, I think, is also drawing more attention to the right. And so this is well done. I, I I love the website. It looks. Oh, like thank you, thank you. Yeah. I think it's quite beautiful. I really yes. love. It. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hey, it's time for hey. shout outs, Donna. You got any shout outs? Yes. Okay. I'm going. I'll shout. I'll shout. See, um, I, I thank you. I shout. 
um, the Ellison family um, in um, the political dynasty that now is in Minnesota. Yes. Keith Ellison, who I grew up with, his wife, Kim Ellison, who I went to high school with, and their son, Jeremiah Bay Ellison, are helping to lead the process for change inside of the um, city of Minneapolis in the state of Minnesota. Keith is the attorney general who is prosecuting the four uh, police officers who have been charged with the murder of George Floyd. Um, Kim is the chair of the Minneapolis School Board, which um, severed its contract with the police department and, of course, Jeremiah, ba Jeremiah Bay Ellison, who came to prominence fighting police aggression in Minneapolis, which is a strangely racist city for one that is so liberal. Helps you understand that you can be progressive and racist at the same time. Hmm. Um, Jeremiah Bay Ellison helped lead the city council to decide they were going to disband policing as it currently looks in Minnesota and replace it with public safety that actually protects residents of all nationalities and um, stops the abuses on people who are Black and Native American, which Both is really right. interesting to me because in Minneapolis, we were there last year, yeah, and um, we learned <laughs> that there was a lot of... Anyway, do you remember when we were driving through that homeless village of Native American people in Minneapolis last year? Yes. How stunning that was. And so the, um, the oppression is there and there are Native Detroiters, as I think we just heard, Big Mama Native Detroiters know how to get it done. And we are in Minneapolis making it happen. Yeah. Um, I want to shout out every single young person, every person who has been protesting and um, leading the charge. I admire people. Um, who have really taken the risk of um, going out there in the midst of a pandemic to stand up for Black Lives Matter. Um, it has been a multicultural affair, but mostly led by young people across Detroit. There's a young lady from, I think, Clinton Township or Sterling Heights who led a big initiative and had a, a march this past Saturday, I believe. Mm -hmm. Young people are really saying we've had enough and we're not going to do it anymore. And as older people, I think we just need to listen. Not you, Orlando, but me. Yeah, my brother asked me if was had I been out there uh, protesting, and Lord knows I would have been. Uh, <laughs> but uh, having uh, gotten sick during this pandemic uh, with pneumonia and COVID, I feel it best that I try to stay away from the crowds. But hats off to everyone who is out there uh, letting their voice be heard uh, on the streets. If you're writing, if you're having conversations, whatever. You, wherever you find yourself on this spectrum of activism, we salute you and we honor you. I want to shout out the Oak Park FedEx who still got my shoes in the warehouse. I'll be watching you closely. I don't know if you've know, heard about this, Donna, but that Oak Park FedEx has been has become notorious right now in terms of people never getting their things and saying that. I had, and I had a painting there for a whole month. It finally came though. We we gonna see. We gonna see. I'm <laughs> what happens with my gym shoes. They're, they were supposed to be delivered today, and then they said, "Oh, it'll be here by June 28th." Like I don't understand. Um, we I also want to shout out shout out to the black journalists at the New York Times and uh, black journalists mm -hmm. everywhere having uh, to experience what we are all experiencing but with an added layer of having to put words to it. It's not an easy thing. Donna, you're in the same boat, right? Uh, we're in the same boat on this show, having to put words to this very hard and grievous experience that we're all going through. Shout out to all the Black journalists. And if you're working for a corporation right now and you're the mouthpiece for that corporation, um, drafting anti-racist uh, language and pledges of solidarity to the Black Lives Matter movement. Shout out to you. I know you, Ty. I know you, Ty. Well, you know, about those New York Times journalists, yeah. um, shout out to those who got that um, editorial page editor, helped him to decide to resign. I tried to unsubscribe this past weekend because of a um, really scary editorial he ran. He says he didn't read it before he ran it, which is... Um, about as unprofessional as you can be. But if you did read it, you could see that he was, um, Senator Cotton was calling for the military yes. to, to crack down on protesters. And so 
uh, people started unsubscribing so quickly that they stopped letting us do it automatically and they made us speak to somebody to try to convince us to change our minds. Yes. I didn't try to unsubscribe, but wow, that's, that's, that's insane. I want to shout out uh, your black friend that did not curse you out when you reached out to them and asked them what you can do. That's for all the white people. That's Donnie, <laughs> 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 you already shout out the Ellisons. I want to shout out uh, Mayor Bowser in DC and my friend Rashad Young, who is her city administrator, for making that street mural happen, as well as the name change, Black Lives Matter Plaza. Y'all did that. Uh, that does it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. We will be back next week. Until then, catch the wave.